we discovered last week as we got back into the book of Isaiah, we're, we're starting to preach from Isaiah 56 to 66, finishing off this book. We discovered that the answer of what God is doing today was actually prophesied by Isaiah um, in 720 BC. And so uh, it'll really help you this morning if you can open up your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 56. You'll find this on page 744. If you didn't get a Bible the first time around, you really do need a Bible in front of you, so don't be frightened to stick your hand up. And uh, we'd love to get a Bible too if you don't have one. Everyone's got a Bible and needs one? Page 744. And uh, as you open up there to Isaiah 56 verse 8, you'll see how it says this, The Sovereign Lord declares, He who gathers the exiles of Israel, I will gather still others to them besides those already gathered. That God is gathering a family for Himself through the saving work of Jesus Christ. That's what God's doing in the world. Um, Isaiah has given us an incredible uh, book uh, from God, and, and, and God promises well in advance of it happening that God would come in human flesh. There would be a son born of a wo woman called Emmanuel, God with us. And, and we look back at this passage in Isaiah through the knowledge that Jesus has fulfilled that promise. That this world that is so messed up by sin could only be fixed when he sends his servants who would be righteous, and, and yet he would suffer in the place of sinners so that he would make us righteous, that we could be forgiven of our sins and make right with God. And of course, we look back through the coming of Jesus and see how he fulfilled that in his suffering and death upon the cross and his resurrection. And Isaiah 2 promises in this closing section how uh, God is going to send a conquering king that's going to usher in the new heavens and the new earth. And we have found ourselves really as in between this first coming where Jesus has come and suffered and died in the place of sinners and awaiting his second coming where he, he will return as conquering king. And these chapters that we began to see in the first eight verses of 56, this stunning picture of what should mark the people of God. A restful righteousness, uh, 56 verse 1, that, that cares about justice and prioritizes the joy and rest of fellowship with God. And an inclusive welcome. Where all types of people from all ethnic backgrounds, from all the world, any who will bind themselves to the Lord Jesus Christ will be welcomed into his family. And that's why it's such a joy to look at here and see people from all the nations gathered here, all sorts of different backgrounds, and yet you've come and can come through trusting Jesus into the family of God. But from that description of what God's people should be, and one day fully will be, we get this shattering description of the reality of what they are actually like in this time of waiting for the world to come. So let me read these uh, verses to us from 56 verse 9 uh, through to uh, verse 13 of chapter 57. So please follow along with me. 
Come, all you beasts of the field. Come and devour all you beasts of the forest. Israel's watchmen are blind. They all lack knowledge. They are all mute dogs. They cannot bark. They lie around and dream. They love to sleep. They are dogs with mighty appetites. They never have enough. They are shepherds who lack understanding. They all turn to their own way. They seek their own gain. Come, each one cries, let me get wine. Let us drink our fill of beer and tomorrow will be like today or even far better. The righteous perish and no one takes it to heart. The devout are taken away and no one understands that the righteous are taken away to be spared from evil. Those who walk uprightly enter into peace. They find rest as they lie in death. But you, come here, you children of a sorceress, you offspring of adulterers and prostitutes. Who are you mocking? At whom do you sneer and stick out your tongue? Are you not a brood of rebels, the offspring of liars? You burn with lust among the oaks, and under every spreading tree you sacrifice your children in the ravines, and under the overhanging crags. The idols among the smooth stones of the ravines are your portion. Indeed, they are your lot. Yes, to them you've poured out drink offerings and offered grain offerings. In view of all this, should I relent? You've made your bed on a high and lofty hill. There you went up to offer your sacrifices. Behind your doors and your doorposts, you've put your pagan symbols. Forsaking me, you uncovered your bed. You climbed into it and opened it wide. You made a pact with those whose beds you love, and you looked with lust on their naked bodies. You went to Molech with olive oil and increased your perfumes. You sent your ambassadors far away, your descendants to the very realms of the dead. You descended to the realm of the dead. You wearied yourself by going about, but you would not say it is hopeless. You found renewal of your strength, and so you did not faint. Whom have you so dreaded and feared that you have not been true to me? And have neither remembered me nor taken this to heart. Is it not because I've been long silent that you do not fear me? I will expose your righteousness and your works. And they will not benefit you. When you cry out for help, let your collection of idols save you. The wind will carry all of them off. A mere breath will blow them away. But whoever takes refuge in me will inherit the land and possess my holy mountain. This is God's word. So what are those who are supposed to be the people of God actually like in this time of waiting for Jesus to return as king? Well, the answer of this chapter is that they are a very mixed crowd. Some are genuine, others are hypocrites. 
Some care about justice and righteousness and honoring God, but others are pursuing wickedness and worshiping other things. This was true at the time of Isaiah the prophet. Let's just look at the historical context that he was in. If you turn back to 2 Kings chapter 21, 2 Kings chapter 21, you'll find this on page 392. Second Kings chapter 21. After King Hezekiah uh, experienced a great deliverance and um, was spared, the son that followed him, King Manasseh, aggressively pursued all the false gods and pagan practices of his neighbors. Look at uh, verse 1 of chapter 21. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem for 55 years. His mother's name was Hepzibah. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, following the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. He rebuilt the high places his father Hezekiah destroyed. He also erected altars to Baal and made an Asherah pole, as Ahab, king of Israel, had done. He bowed down to all the starry hosts and worshipped them. He built altars in the temple of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem I will put my name. In the two courts of the temple of the Lord, he built altars to all the starry hosts. He sacrificed his own son in the fire practiced divination, sought omens, and consulted mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the eyes of the Lord, arousing his anger. Look at verse 16. Moreover, Manasseh also shed so much innocent blood that he filled Jerusalem from end to end, beside the sin that he had caused Judah to commit, so that they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Well, turn back to Isaiah chapter 56. Much of the language of the description of the time of King Manasseh in which Isaiah lived is taken up to describe the dangers of what faces God's people when they pursue idolatry and pagan worship. And it, it falls in this section that seems to be teaching the, uh, those who would return from exile of the great dangers that face them. And it suggests that every generation has the same temptations to say that they are God's people, but actually to cheat on God and end up doing everything that he despises. And so we need to be warned and be prepared for this reality that in this waiting time, the visible Christian church will be a very mixed reality of the true and the false. Forgiveness of sins is possible now because Jesus has come. But you know what? There's still evil and wickedness that spoils and that tempts his people and corrupts his people. And notice with me that it starts with the leaders, the failure of leadership that you see uh, in the verses 9 to 12 of Isaiah 56. 
You see, what, what are the leaders of God's people supposed to do? Well, there's two main words used here. There's the watchmen who are supposed to be alert uh, for the dangers that threaten God's people. And you've got the shepherds, those who are to nurture and strengthen the life of God's flock. But look at the tragedy that Isaiah describes here. The people are effectively like sheep without a shepherd. There's both threat and irony in the call of God in verse 9. As he calls on the beasts of the forest to come and devour his flock. How can God do this? Well, because its leaders are so incompetent. They're blind watchmen, verse 10. They seem to lack all knowledge of the threats. They cannot see the problems around them. They're mute dogs that don't bark against the danger. They all seem to lack knowledge of the true spiritual state of the situation. And right down to the history of the church have come false teachers who gain a hearing in churches and draw people into their subversive teaching and into false gospels and false practices that will harm the flock. After the coming of Jesus, uh, when the Apostle Paul had seen Jesus on the, risen, uh, on the road to Damascus and became a great missionary and planter of churches, we have this thing in Acts 20 where he calls the elders, the leaders of the church in Ephesus to him in one final address and he warns them about what's going to happen. He says this, keep watch on yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers or watchmen. It's the same sort of word. Be shepherds of the church of God which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. And so the elders in this room, whether you're visiting from another church or the elders of this congregation, we are called to be watchful for the flock and to watch that we don't become the wolves abusing the sheep for our own desires and gain. Tragically, there's been so much awful stuff in the news about how priests and pastors have used their uh, position not to protect the flock, but to abuse the flock. Instead of caring for the flock, uh, Isaiah warns that these uh, false shepherds will just care for themselves. They're just like dogs who just simply want to sleep. And when they wake up, their only concern is for their own insatiable appetites and satisfying their own desires. And these are supposed to be the shepherds. But they're just self-focused. And they're oblivious to the danger shadowing God's flock. You know, verse 12, they're, they're, as they're shouting, come to each other. Come, let's get more drinks in. Uh, let's get seshed. Uh, you know, tomorrow's going to be an even better party. come. They're oblivious to the fact that in verse 9, God is calling, uh, come to the beasts of the field. Come and devour all you beasts of the forest. This is a sobering warning to anyone, I think, in a position of trust and leadership over other people. How do we exercise that leadership? 
whether that's in the world of business or politics or the church? Is it, is it for the, the good of those we serve or is it for ourselves? Despite a growing consensus in the, in the culture that your private behavior has nothing to do with your public position, the Bible says that the character of the leader is crucial if the people are going to be properly cared for. What a terrible thing to be led by those whose moral character is so corrupted that they just use their position just to satisfy their own desires for their own goods. They, they just pursue their own selfish pleasures and sinful desires off the back of those that they're supposed to be leading and caring for. Do you remember that Jesus looked out on the crowds and he had compassion on them for they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And so he taught the crowds the word of God and proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God that it was coming. And that's why you see, alongside the ability to be able to teach God's word, the qualification for elders in the church is largely to do with their godly behavior. If they're married, they're to be faithful to their spouses. They're to be self-controlled, hospitable. Uh, not given to drunkenness, not given to violence, not lovers of money. And you can see how that list fits with this concern of what will happen or can happen when leadership fails and goes wrong. It is absolutely vital to have Christian leaders who believe God's word, who teach it, and who live it out with integrity. Because when the leaders of God's people go bad, then the church will drift into increasing error and even paganism. And when the church goes bad, then society will just keep sliding into darkness. And that's what we see in chapter 57. At the end of chapter 56 is the view from the palace, from, from the place of power. Then uh, chapter 57 gives us the experience of the people under that leadership. And there are just three things I want to want to observe this morning with you. Three characteristics that happen when you're under failed leadership. Number one, uh, the righteous are mocked and perishing. That's what the first four verses tell us. Open Doors, a, a Christian charity, report that there that 200 million Christians in the world today experience some form of persecution in around 50 countries in the world. And the biggest offender uh, continues to be North Korea. I don't know whether you saw the documentary that Michael Palin had on TV this week, but when he came into North Korea, one of the questions he was asked by the guards was, do you have a Bible? They didn't want anyone to bring a Bible into North Korea. So far uh, this year in northern Nigeria, 6,000 Christians have been killed. But there's very little attention given to it in our media. 6,000 this year. And Isaiah prophesies um, all of this. Uh, he sees it in chapter 57 that there's a time coming when something very disturbing is going to happen. Verse 1, the righteous perish and no one notices and cares. No one takes it to heart. The devout are taken away and no one understands. 
not even the supposed leaders. And there is this general tone of mockery in the culture towards those who love the Lord and are living faithfully for him, as we see in verse 4. The mocking and the sneering. Now, why is this happening? What is going on? Well, Isaiah gives us a very surprising answer in verse 1. The righteous are perishing because God is choosing to take his people away to spare them from further evil days. Isn't that surprising? For anyone not trusting Jesus, death is a total tragedy. But I want you to consider for a moment how blessed are the Lord's people in death. From these two verses. You know, our death is not random. But it is in the hands of a purposeful, loving, sovereign Lord. They're not perishing. The Lord says, I'm taking them away. And for the believer, they mark um, not the end of all hope and and the tragedy of all over. No, they, they enter into peace and rest. See, when we've been made right with God through trusting Jesus, they, then death is, is not to be feared. The, the sting of death is removed. In fact, death is more like sleep, where, where we wait until we experience the resurrection day when Jesus comes back as conquering king. So what should we expect of this time when we're waiting for his return? We should expect times of tribulation and difficulty where at times we just simply need to cling on to Jesus and his promises of what is to come because all around us is unfriendliness, mockery, threats, and even those that we love who love Jesus losing their lives. In the UK right now, the National Church of England and uh, Scotland are seeing massive decline in their attendance. Congregations are getting older and shrinking at an alarming rate. And it seems to me that the leaders seem to keep making decisions that end up making the church just like the rest of the culture. And they make life very difficult for those who are seeking to remain faithful to God's words. And when those who are devoted to the Lord are disappearing from congregations, leaders should wake up. That's the first thing to notice. Second thing, in this waiting time, we will see as leaders fail, a growing superstition and idol worship. What we have here is a description of how twisted and destructive false worship can become. When we put our faith in the wrong place, in, in man-made idols and false gods, then there is increasing decay and awfulness. Paganism is making quite a comeback in Britain. Here in Edinburgh at the end of April, uh, you'll get about 15,000 people queuing up to see the Beltane Fire Festival up on Carlton Hill. It's a sort of fertility play that's uh, is a modern-day reworking of ancient fertility cults. Uh, the Beltane actually relates to the god Baal, believe it or not. Here we are in modern 21st century Edinburgh, and there's people kind of doing sort of Baal worship. Not all are serious pagans, of course. 
Many just go to see naked people dancing around. Bit of a joke. And that's always been the appeal of pagan religions where sexual activity is dressed up as some sort of spiritual experience as part of, a, of seeking to get the gods to bring fertility among the people and among the crops. Prostitution was a, a key part of the worship under evergreen trees or in their shrines. And Isaiah in these verses shows the total devotion and busyness of the people as they pursue their, their idols and their, and their pagan worship. They're heading up the mountains to the evergreen trees and then they're, they're down in the ravines, endlessly wearying themselves with worshipping and sacrificing to what? To stones that can do them no good. And they make endless sacrifices and, and they get, the sacrifices get worse and worse to get to the extent that they are even willing to sacrifice their children to pursue the favor of their gods. As the, the god Molech that's mentioned in the text, worship of Molech often used to happen. Even King Manasseh offered his son to be burnt in the fire. Isaiah saw with horror. You see, throwing off the God of the Bible, uh, as Scotland has busily been doing, um, doesn't mean that we become people who don't worship. It means that we worship lots of false things. Uh, we idolize the stuff of creation rather than the God who creates all of it. And what is stunning is when supposedly Christian churches capitulate and syncretize with a culture and remodel its own beliefs to fit in with a culture that basically is elevating sex and feelings and the self over God himself. Now, how does God view all of this? Well, Isaiah uses some really shocking imagery here. You know, imagine how the spouse would feel who's uh, saved up lots of money. He's, he's married They've married the person they most want to marry and, they, and they, they, they paid for the honeymoon. And yet every day they come back to their room, their spouse is in bed with another man, another person, uh, just trying to earn money. Imagine the horror of that. God uses that sort of imagery here just to shock us, to help us understand that actually what when God's people behave like this, it's worse than adultery. It's, it's full-on spiritual prostitution that some of his people are engaged in. The God who created them, who sustained them, the God who redeemed them out of slavery and even returned them from exile, as he watches his people, verse 8, forsaking me, you uncovered your bed, you climbed into it and opened it wide and made a pact with those whose beds you love. The God who made us, the God who sustains us, the God who sent his son, Jesus, to redeem his people for his glory, cares about what we love and worship and how we worship. God is jealous for the love, the faithful love of his people. And we are so easily tempted to accommodate our lives into the false values of a rebellious world. 
It's so easy to drift from living for Jesus to basically living for the same idols that everybody else is living for. Whether that's career, success, more money, more comfort, more acclaim, more stuff, following uh, the values of our culture, pursuing the British dream of owning an ever bigger house with all the latest gadgets, pursuing our own interests, pursuing our own pleasures, pursuing our own satisfaction, basically wanting the approval, the kudos of our, of our culture. And so we decide we're not going to rock the boat. We're just going to follow what everybody else is doing. James, writing to his church, accuses, of, accuses them of something shocking. He says, you adulterous people. He's addressing the church. How does he know that, that they are being adulterous, uh, that they are loving the world rather than loving God? Well, because he sees lots of fights and quarrels. You, you want things you do not have, and so you fight to get them. People's hearts are skewed to the idols and stuff of the world rather than to loving God. And so we need to be warned from Isaiah, from God's word, that there is this temptation in this time of waiting when the culture is against us to follow and worship the same stuff that this culture is pursuing. The third characteristic of this time of waiting is an unhealthy fear and anxiety grips our hearts instead of the fear of the Lord. Verse 11 of chapter 57. Whom have you so dreaded and feared that you have not been true to me and have neither remembered me nor pondered this in your hearts? Is it not because I've been long silent that you do not fear me? You see, our culture that no longer fears and honors the Lord as the sovereign God over creation is not one that lives in peace. No. It's filled with an avalanche of other fears and anxieties. You see, if money and wealth is your idol, then right now, uh, if that's where you're looking for security, you're very nervous about Brexit. If you're, you know, the, the, the thought of our economy shrinking is terrifying because that's what you're living for. If your God is the approval of your friends, then your highs and lows will depend on how many likes you get. If your God is your looks, then you will anxiously, anxiously spend hours and hours um, on makeup and looking good and even going to get surgery just to look like some of your Instagram pictures. And psychologists are, are, are describing now that we're in a, an anxiety epidemic in the Western world. And they're wondering how much the smartphone is to blame. See, we begin thinking that we will gain control uh, of life by having these idols. These idols will satisfy us. These idols will meet our needs. If we go for worship and live for these, these things, we'll have power over them. But what we find out is as time goes on, these things have power over us. As we offer greater and greater sacrifices for them, we're actually filled with more and more anxieties and fears because actually it's just stones. Utterly powerless to help us. It's just stuff. And because God is the true and living God, then a day will come when the emptiness of the false gods and idols will be exposed. In the day of trouble, he says through Isaiah, uh, 
Look at how useful all your collection of idols will be. A mere moment, a wind, a breath, and they will be blown away. But what is the antidote to all these crippling fears and anxieties? Well, the Bible would tell us this. We need to recover a healthy reverence and fear for the Lord God. I love that bit in Mark's Gospel, uh, which tells about how the disciples are in a boat with Jesus. Uh, He's been teaching all day. He's exhausted. He's asleep in the boat. And a furious storm comes up on the sea. And these men who used to fish in these waters, they are absolutely terrified. They're convinced they're going to die, that they're going to drown in the sea. And so they wake up Jesus and they say, Teacher, don't you care that we're going to drown? Jesus wakes up, stands up in the boat, and rebukes the wind and the waves, saying, Quiet, be still. And it suddenly goes quiet. From this raging storm to quietness. And what's the response of the disciples? Are they thrilled? No, they are even more terrified. Who is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. When you see how awesome Jesus is, God come in human flesh, that this God of the universe who has control of everything, when you understand how awesome and powerful he is that is absolutely terrifying to be confronted with it face to face as the disciples were in that boat as they saw Jesus doing something that only God can do but get this when you understand that this Jesus has come to be your rescuer and he's offering to provide you refuge oh if he is my refuge I don't need to fear anything else If he's my rescuer, what can touch me apart from his loving, sovereign, good plan? To use the language of verse 13 in our chapter today, in contrast to these empty idols that cannot save in the day of trouble, it says this, but the man who makes me his refuge, God says, the man who makes me his refuge will inherit the land and possess my holy mountain. Now, I wish I had time just to show you from the whole of Isaiah uh, the richness of this, of what's meant by the mountain, my holy mountain. But it's basically the Old Testament code language for saying that in the gospel, God offers us everything. Everything we actually deep down desire. Everything that we're desperately trying to make up uh, and get ourselves out of our, own, uh, out of our own existence. You know, God wants to offer it to us for free through his Son. Through Jesus, God is offering us everything we really need. They're, they're saying that the, um, for the students and young adults coming up, they're, they're going to be desperately trying to get a deposit for a house that they won't be able to afford. What's going to happen when the British dream is gone? You can't own your house. You can't have your bit of garden. This is my dream. I'm going to get my house. I'm, I'm going to own a bit of land. It's going to be the place that makes me happy and safe and secure. It's going to be... God says, make me your refuge and you'll get everything. <laughs> I think Jesus was meditating on these very chapters as he, as he uh, preached the Sermon on the Mount. And he said this, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, 
persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil things uh, against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward, Jesus says. Living for Jesus now might mean meekly coping with mockery and persecution. It might mean meekly accepting death rather than giving up on faithfulness to the Lord. But in losing our lives for him, it turns out we gain the whole world. And so Peter, the disciple of Jesus, who, who was in the boat with Jesus and, and witnessed the, that incredible event of him stilling the storm, he would later write to uh, the Christian church that was experiencing a mocking and hostile um, culture around it. And he said this in 1 Peter chapter 3, Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. Revere him. Fear him. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. My friends, in this waiting time, it's going to be a very mixed multitude. Let's make the Lord our refuge. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you that in your loving kindness, you've warned us of the dangers of these times. Give us hearts that tremble under your word. Give us a vision of the awesome majesty of your Son, that we may run to him for salvation and refuge. Lord, would you comfort those who are grieving in Nigeria? Would you comfort your church that's suffering around the world? And Lord, would you grant us the ability to cope with um, whatever may come our way living in this culture? Confident that in Christ we have everything. We ask this in his precious name. Amen.